Mark chapter 2, read that in our English Bibles as well, Mark chapter, no, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through 13. It's a very unique story. It's uh, not just a story, but history that actually happened on the mountain. And you also read the same account in Luke chapter 9, as well as in Matthew chapter 17. We'll read Mark's version, chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he didn't know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came, overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man? that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. By the way, when it says Elijah here in verse 13, that refers to John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. (laughs) So we shouldn't get confused here. But Elijah uh, lost his head, remember? He was also persecuted for his faith. And now you see a parallel with Christ, who's also going to be rejected. Sorry, John the Baptist had his head lost and therefore see a parallel also to Christ who will be rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees. But our focus this morning is verses 2 through 10 of Mark chapter 9. A glimpse of glory, the glory of heaven. There you see it. On the mountain. You think of an Olympian. One who is an athlete with the Olympics. What does he do? He fixes his eyes on the medal. That's what he works for. That's what he lives for. He lives for the gold. But you know what? The follower of Jesus also fixes his eyes on the glory to come. Think of the follower of Jesus as we heard last week. What is a follower of Jesus? He's one who denies himself and takes up his cross. You know the Bible says that if you're a follower of Jesus, you will be persecuted. It's just the life of a Christian. Uh, They won't necessarily like you for what you stand for at work. Maybe family pressures. But when you're committed to Christ, it will reveal itself in, in 
perhaps not only anger, but in other ways in which they will try to provoke you, stand against you. And now Jesus is going to show something of his glory. We have to fix our eyes on the glory, because that's what's going to encourage us to remain faithful to Christ to the very end. The glory, which outweighs any kind of insult that we may endure in this life for our faith in Christ. Canada is becoming quickly a nation where insults are being hurled at Christians, that is, true followers of Jesus Christ. And so that should be an encouragement also for us today as we look at the transfiguration, the glimpse of glory. You notice what Christ does. That's what he does too. He fixes his eyes on the glory to come. Right? He wins that glory for us. He's the one who wins that glory for us by suffering, by being rejected, by being killed on the cross. Indeed, his followers, as he makes clear, must share in his suffering. But you know what? It doesn't end there. They will also share in his glory. The Bible talks about reigning with him in glory. And that glory is just pictured momentarily, briefly, in Christ's transfiguration on the mountain. And as if to encourage us, he wants to show us that there's more, there's more to life. There's the eternal life, that glory. He gives a glimpse of his glory that he gains, that he will gain through his obedient suffering on the cross. He's going to remain obedient to his Father to the very end because of the joy that he will gain for his followers. And now he wants his followers, his disciples, to share in something of that glimpse of that glory as a way to encourage us. And he wants to assure us of it. And he does that in three ways. He assures us of this glory, first of all, through the witness of Moses and Elijah. When you think of Moses and Elijah, think of the Old Testament. Through the witness of Moses and Elijah. Second of all, through the witness of the Father in heaven. And third of all, through the witness of the apostles. When you think of the apostles, think of the New Testament. Old Testament, New Testament, and the Father from heaven. Those three witnesses. That will stand up in court any day. Those three witnesses to assure us. First of all, we see the witness of Elijah and Moses. What do we read after six days? It's probably after that incident in Caesarea Philippi where, where Peter, by the grace of God, confesses that Jesus is the Christ. It's a revelation that did it's a revelation that came from the Father in heaven that he came to confess this. And six days after that, we read that Jesus then took Peter, James, and John and He led them up onto the top of a high mountain apart by themselves. So the other disciples stayed behind. This is not the first time because we know with the raising of Jairus' daughter, Jesus brought the same three disciples with him into the room. And that will also happen later in Gethsemane. He brings those three disciples with him further into the garden. Peter, James, and John. And likewise here on the mountain. And Luke, if you go to Luke's version of the transfiguration, he tells us there that he that Jesus was praying. What was he praying for? He's praying 
for the strength to remain obedient to God his Father. He wants to remain obedient to the very end. As the time of his death and suffering comes closer and closer, the guilt, think of the guilt, the weight of our sin, how it lay so heavy on him. And now, as Jesus is praying, you can be sure he visualizes he visualizes the end of it, his suffering and he sees something of the glory that he's hoping for, that he's praying, that, he's, that he will soon attain for himself and for us. And then we read, he was transfigured before them. On top of the mountain, he was transfigured before them. That is before the three disciples. That's a big word, transfigured. What's that mean? It simply means to change in figure. We think transfiguration, think of changing in figure or changing in appearance. You know, for a few moments, for a few moments, Christ experienced his exaltation, the exaltation that he would obtain through his suffering and death on the cross. For a few moments, his exaltation, his glory, the glory began to show itself in his physical appearance. You could say in his glory and a glorified humanity. And as a result, his clothing becomes so white, so shining white, whiter than anyone in the world could ever bleach the clothes. For a few moments, for a few brief moments, Christ was lifted above all his suffering. And you see how Christ is being strengthened that he may remain obedient to his Father to the very end. So he has for himself, but it's also for his disciples. It happened before his disciples. That's important too. He was transfigured before them. That is, before James, Peter, and John. That was for their benefit but also for ours. There is a cost of following Jesus. A great cost. It may mean even the loss of our physical lives because of our faith in Jesus Christ, as we'll see in the world around us. But now Jesus wishes to show us that the cost is so puny, it's so tiny, compared to the greatness of the glory that is to come. And by faith, he wants us to see something of that glory. And he wants us to cherish that in our hearts with great, great expectation. That's what's going to encourage us to remain faithful to Jesus to the very end in our daily lives. So yeah, this brief, this momentary transfiguration really is a picture, or actually foreshadows the glory of Christ's resurrection in which all his people, that is all believers, all his followers, will share in, share in the glory of his resurrection. Verse 4, we see that the disciples saw two others who were also glorified. Who were they? Moses and Elijah. Moses lived 1,400 years before, before this time, and Elijah lived about 800 years before this time. 
Yeah, Moses, we know, died. God buried him. Elijah did not die. But either way, they're both with the Lord in heaven. There they were in their glorified state. And these two appeared to the disciples on the mountain. And what were they doing? They were talking with Jesus. So they're not ghosts. They're actual Moses and Elijah, but in their glorified state, talking with Jesus. It's not a dream. It's not a fiction of their imagination of the disciples. The disciples saw it with their own physical eyes. How do they recognize Elijah and Moses? They recognize them. The Lord probably had made it plain to them, this is Moses, this is Elijah. They were talking with Jesus. What were they talking with Jesus about? What do you think? Well, we know. If you go to Luke chapter 9, they were talking to Jesus about his suffering and about his coming death on the cross and the glory that he would obtain for his followers, for all who believe on him. You know, Moses and Elijah, they probably said something like this. One author puts it this way. They're saying, we had the privilege of suffering also for you, Lord, and conquering. And we've been glorified, but everything we were privileged to receive was because of you. It's because of the Lord Jesus. It's because you are going to finish your work in perfect obedience and receive the glory. You're the one that's going to atone for sin and give life. We have this state because of you, Lord Jesus. They're bearing witness. They're bearing witness to him. Elijah appears with Moses. They're both witnesses of Christ's glory. As if to point to him. He's the one. He's the one. Jesus is the one. These are the witnesses who represent the entire Old Testament. Moses the law and Elijah the prophets. The entire Old Testament bears witness to Christ. Remember when Jesus, after he had risen from the dead, what did he say to his disciples? He said, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, there you see Moses and the prophet, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's all about Christ. Think of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is very, very important to read. Very important. Because it's all about Christ and how it all culminates in the Christ. Moses and Elijah are pointing to him. The entire Old Testament is about Jesus. Their witness is fulfilled in Christ. The witness of Moses and Elijah. You know, as immediately followed by the witness of the Father in heaven, there's no greater witness that should encourage us, that should enable us to continue in the strength of the Lord to face persecution, to face those who might be against Christ in our lives. Go on, journey on. Because now we're going to hear a witness greater than even Moses and Elijah as one from the Father.
for a moment. It was though as Christ had already gained the victory, just a moment, he experienced that blessed fellowship of heaven with Moses and Elijah because of him they were already in heaven. The disciples don't understand that this amazing moment is not going to last. They don't realize it. Notice Peter's response. In spite of Peter's great fear, inside of the great fear of the disciples about the heavenly glory around them, Peter doesn't know what to say. He's the first one to speak. He generally is the one. He's the one that when there's a kind of a funny or difficult situation, he's the first one to blurt out something. People, some people are like that. Well, that was Peter. He had expressed his feelings somehow, so he blurts out. He says, Rabbi, it is so good for us to be here. And it was good. I mean, he tastes something of what heaven is going to be like. That blessed fellowship of heaven. That, that's what heaven is. It's a blessed fellowship of being with Christ without any trace of sin. It was so good that he suggested Jesus, how about we build three tabernacles, or the word here is tents. Three Three tents, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for Jesus. Peter's thinking of, hey, let's stay here permanently. He's thinking this is going to be a permanent kind of existence. He wants to continue that same fellowship there on the mountain. But that's not possible right now. That will happen one day. That will happen one day when Christ returns in the clouds of glory And then God's glory will come down to earth. Revelation 21. On that day, the tabernacle of God will be with men, and he will dwell with them. But that day is not now. It's coming, but it's not here yet. In other words, Peter, you continue to serve the Lord as a disciple on earth. You'll be willing to endure the persecution. You'll be willing to stand up for the sake of Christ. And you'll be my witnesses on earth. It's not time yet. It's not time for the rest. Fight on. Continue to be a soldier for Christ. Yes, the believer can live on with the hope of glory in his heart. The hope there is in the heart of all his followers. Peter offered a suggestion, build tents. What's the answer? The answer comes in the way that he does not expect. It comes in the form of a cloud which overshadowed them. That's the answer to Peter's request or suggestion. He suggests a tent, and the cloud comes and overshadows them. That's what we read in verse 7. Where have we heard about cloud before in the Bible? Remember? Again, go back to the Old Testament. So important to know the Old Testament. Think of Exodus chapter 40. After Israel built the tabernacle, okay, the tabernacle is also called the tent of meeting. That's where the worship center of Israel was. Okay, what do we read there? We read there that the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You read that later about the, in the temple as well. In 1 Kings chapter 8, the cloud covering it and the glory of the Lord filling it. 
As a matter of fact, if you read Exodus, you, we also come to know that the, the cloud covered the tabernacle also as they journeyed through the wilderness. The cloud would move, the tabernacle would move. The cloud would stop, and they would stop their journeys for the time being. And now Peter, James, and John see that glory that had once covered Israel's meeting tent. A cloud comes and overshadows them. Peter suggested to build a tent, a tabernacle for each. But the tent is already among them. Who's the tabernacle? Who's the tent? Jesus. The tabernacle, the temple, pointed to Jesus. He's the tent. He's the tabernacle. John 1.14, John who was on the mountain, what does he say? The word became flesh and dwelt. The word for dwelt is tented, tabernacled among us. And John says, and we have seen his glory. Perhaps he was also thinking of this incident. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter, you don't make the tent. Jesus is the tent. He makes you. He's the one who calls. He's the one who brings people into fellowship with him. He's the one. Wow. And then all of a sudden, you hear the witness of the Father in verse 7. A voice coming out of that cloud saying, this is the tent. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Hear him. Where do we hear these words before? Remember at Jesus' baptism? At the beginning of his ministry? What happened? Christ was baptized for us for and in our place. He was there to carry our sins. And when he came up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a, like a dove. And he heard a voice come from heaven saying, You are my, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There Jesus, there the Father was speaking directly to Jesus. Right? He begins his ministry, begins his ministry of carrying the cross right, for our sins. And now, at the end of his task on earth, we hear the Father speak again. This time not directly to Jesus, but now to his disciples. Peter, James, John. This is the one. If you don't believe on him, you have nothing. Hear him. Believe him. Trust him. He's the one who will carry you through and bring you to glory. He's the one. There is no other. He's the only one for the whole world. To reject him is to lose life. Is to reject life because he is the life. He's my son. This is the father speaking. This is my beloved son. Yes, my beloved son, he must be rejected. He must be crucified. I'm sending him so that you may belong to me through faith in Christ. Wow. 
in Christ's obedience to the Father, he will obtain the glory by rising from the dead. And that's the glimpse of glory that the disciples are now seeing and witnessing. The Father adds that earnest exhortation. Hear him. Don't despise him. Don't turn away from him. Hear him. The disciples were tending to be not believing. They were tending to doubt. They were tending to resist him. Hear him. Believe. Because he's the only one who goes to the cross to die for the sins. We deserve to die. But he takes the place for all who trust on him. The Father and his witness also directs us to trust in Christ. You know what? If people spit at you, if people kick dirt at you, if people name, name call to you, it doesn't matter if it's for the sake of Christ. Because the glory is so much greater to come. Stand. Stand for Christ. And you have the strength to do so. There's a glimpse of his glory given us right here. And you know what? The witness of the Father is no greater witness than him. The Father's strong exhortation proves that he, along with the Son and with the Holy Spirit, he loves, he takes delight in saving sinners. Hear him. And then, suddenly, they look around. The voice is gone. The glory has left. Except for Jesus, the glory. But the cloud is gone, is taken away. Moses and Elijah are gone. And they only see the Lord Jesus as he had been before. They must live by faith. The disciples must live by faith, not by sight. For a moment, there was sight. But they must live by faith. Peter wanted to remain on the mountain. He wrongly assumes that the coming glory may be given to him without a cost. Not so. Jesus knows that it comes with a price. The price of his own blood. And the glory he will gain when he rises on the third day will be ours through faith in him. But now he must go down the mountain. Not only go down the mountain, but leave the glory behind and in obedience go to the cross. The glory himself, you could say, goes to the cross to obtain glory for himself and for his disciples, for his followers. We hear the witness of Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. We hear the witness of the Father. And we also hear the witness of Peter, James, and John. Verse 9. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them that they should talk to no one about these things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They saw it. See what it says in verse 9? They had seen it. They saw it with their eyes. They're witnesses. But for the time, for the time being, Jesus commands Peter, James, and John not to tell anyone. Tell when? Till he had risen from the dead. Why? Why wait till then? Well, the disciples were not ready. There was still so much confusion. You notice that in verse 10, they're still wondering, what is, what is he talking about? 
rising from the dead. We, we don't understand it. Right? That, that happens sometimes, even with us as believers. Sometimes we don't understand certain things. And that was what we see with the disciples here. But not until Christ completed his suffering, not until he has risen from the dead, would they then come to understand the meaning. Because after all, it's only by the power of Christ's death and resurrection that we come to see. Without it, we can't. <laughs> only when we believe in Christ do we come to see reality as it is by the power of his death and resurrection. That's why Jesus said, wait. And you read Luke 24. It's all talking about the opening of the eyes and the opening of the mind and the opening of the understanding. Because it's only by Christ's death and resurrection. You know, today he is risen. And today each one of us are commanded to bear witness. We're commanded to tell. But you notice that after the resurrection, Peter talks about this event. Did you know that? He speaks about it. In the second book of Peter, 1, verses 16 to 18, Peter says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory, which such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter refers to that. He shares that. The transfiguration gave the three disciples an inside peek of the glory to come, the glory that is gained for us by his death and resurrection. All his disciples eventually bore witness. Christ is risen from the dead. Amen to that. We can praise God for that. The witness of the apostles we find in the entire New Testament. The entire New Testament bears witness of the, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He's glorified. He's risen. He's the conquering king. A follower of Jesus, as we heard last week, is one who denies himself, takes up his cross. We need the power of the resurrected Christ to be able to do that, don't we? In ourselves, we can't. But we have the strength. We have his power by his spirit to stand firm in our faith. How does this transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain encourage us in our lives as his followers today, it's this. You have a future glory guaranteed in Christ. You have the witnesses before you. Don't doubt them. Those witnesses are there for our sake. And therefore, we can bear witness to it. You know that word transfigure? To change figure? is mentioned in two other places in the Bible, in the New Testament. In addition to uh, Ma uh, Matthew 17, it's also found in Romans 12, verse 2, and also in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Just notice those for a second. And may they also be encouragement to us. 2 Kings 3, 18, we read, We all, he's talking about, Paul's here speaking to the church of Corinth. 
we all beholding the glory of the Lord are being transfigured, changed, transformed into the likeness, into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Being changed. How? Into the likeness of Christ. Conversion is necessary. We need to be converted to Christ. And when we're converted to Christ, those change, that change of becoming more and more like Christ begins to take place in our life. It's a lifetime from one degree of glory to another, says 2 Timothy or 2 Corinthians 3.18. And the beautiful thing is that today, you know, God dwells with us today. How? Not by a cloud. But how? By his spirit. The cloud points to the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now lives in the life, lives of believers, in the life of his body, the body of Christ, the church. The glory of Christ is seen in the resurrected body. This is what the church is. It's the resurrected body of Christ. Now, mind you, not physically yet, but spiritually, it's resurrected. It's a fellowship of believers. It's called the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow. It's a new family. It's a new fellowship. By faith we behold the glory of the risen Christ in his word. Sunday to Sunday. Wow. It's so important to be where the Lord is on Sundays. Among his people. That's the glory. That's the taste. <laughs> and that's how we change from one degree of glory to another. Through his word and by his spirit, he continues to change us so that we may continue to be strengthened in being his followers. And second, the future glory to come encourages us to be faithful in our commitment to Jesus as his followers. It's a loving commitment because he so loved us. He loved us, therefore we love him. Committed to him in our homes. Committed to him in our workplace. Willing to suffer insult. Committed to him as members of his body. Committed to him as one fellowship. You know, it's in Romans 12, verse 2. There's the call not to be conformed to the world. Right? We're not to be like the world. What's it say there? But we are to be transformed, transfigured by the renewing of our minds. <laughs> right? How does transfiguration come? By renewing of our minds. And how does the renewal of the minds come? By continually living out of the Word of God. Because through His Word, the Holy Spirit continues to shape us to become more and more like Christ. He's preparing us you notice that in 1 Corinthians 4.17, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, what's it doing for us? It's working for us. It's working for us for a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Wow. Glimpse of his glory. Make no doubt about it. It's reality. This is reality. The only reality is in Christ. 
And we come to Christ, we come by the power of his death and resurrection, we come to see reality for what it is. It's the truth. We have the witnesses, the Old Testament, the Father, the New Testament, the law and the prophets, the Father, and the apostles. Hear him. Believe him. Look unto Jesus, says Hebrews 12, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for his joy, it was his love for you, that he did all of this. How can we get thanks? How can we show, express our love to him? One way, hear him, hear him. Amen.